Talk, talking crime, cases, and backing the blue. Now, here are your hosts, Ed Mamet and Kevin Schroeder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cop Talk. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired NYPD detective. I'm here with my co-host, retired captain of police, NYPD, Ed Mamet. Good afternoon, everybody. Glad to be here with Kevin and our guest, who I know very well and who's a wonderful guy. Thank you, Ed. Today our guest is George Grasso. George Grasso came on the NYPD, came on the job in 1979, and he was assigned to NSU-18 in Queens, working multiple precincts on foot patrol, and then he was assigned to the 6-3 precinct on patrol, and then from there, while he was in the 6-3 precinct, he actually went to law school at St. John's University. Nice program. Then he also went up the rank from sergeant to lieutenant to captain and Deputy Inspector and Deputy Commissioner, and I think you've held every First rank. Deputy First Deputy Commissioner, absolutely, from 2002 to 2010 on the Ray Kelly, Commissioner Kelly. And then now you're a judge. Well, and I retired. You retired August judge. August 31st. But now you'll be running for Queens DA. That's correct. Welcome, George, to the show. Thank you, Kevin. It's an honor to be here. And Ed, it's always good to be with you and to see you again. So, Judge, why don't you bring us up to where you are now and what basically what you've been doing since you left the police department in 2010? Okay. Well, there's a lot there. You know, first of all, it was an honor for me to be able to be a young New York City police officer and to get a full four-year scholarship to the St. John's Law School night program. And I was able to work most of that time as a patrol cop. I began uh, the law school in September of 1980. And I worked steady days in the NSU unit covering the 100 precinct, the 101, the 103, the 105, the 113, which is where we worked out of, and the 106. So I did that for nine months and went to law school as well starting in September of 80. In January of 81, I was transferred to the 6-3, 6-3 precinct in Flatbush and Midwood sections of Brooklyn, New York. And I was a steady midnight police officer. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to be a young cop in law school. I always loved the law. I was always very interested in the criminal justice system and criminal justice. And it was one of the most, the greatest times of my life. Then I made sergeant in December of 1985, and I was in the Department Advocate's Office, which for those who are not doing cop talk would understand, they should understand the Department Advocate's Office was kind of like the internal district attorney's office within the police department, where I was assigned to assess alleged wrongdoing by police officers and, where appropriate, prosecute those cases and hold the officers uh, accountable. And very early on in, in 1986, I was assigned as an assistant special prosecutor on one of the worst corruption scandals the police department ever had. If anyone wants to Google this, I know it's a podcast, just Google Buddy Boys. We had 16 police officers indicted and about 50 officers charged with severe misconduct out of the 77th precinct in Brooklyn. And I worked on that with an early mentor of mine, John Walsh, who was a captain at the time and then went on also to become a judge. We were assigned by the police commissioner, Ben Ward, to handle those cases because Ben Ward and the first deputy police commissioner, Richard Condon, both understood that it was a huge black mark on the NYPD. And I have to say, as an officer at the time who was only 27 or 28 years old, it was very eye-opening 
because as much as I loved the NYPD then, and I still love it now, it opened up the potential of a real underside in police work, that if a police department is not ready to commit appropriate resources to see that officers who do wrong are held accountable, it destroys public trust and ultimately undermine the organization. So loving the organization, when I got to listen to those tapes, there were recordings, like dozens and dozens of recordings. There were two officers who were turned early in the investigation named Winter and Magno. And we had police officers doing burglaries. We had police officers rob- doing actually robbing from people off of the streets and station houses. Police officers were getting guns off the street and, and drugs, and they were being sold. It was a horrible case, and I dove into that with everything I had. And Judge Walsh and I made sure that administratively, those officers were held fully accountable, and they weren't allowed to stay on the police department for six months, a year, two years, three years, while the criminal justice indictment and that whole process unwinded, or in some cases where there wasn't enough evidence for a criminal indictment, which is a much higher standard than an administrative indictment, and we saw there was wrongdoing. And we saw that those officers were separated, and in the context of a trial, a public trial in the department trial room, and we maintain the integrity of the police department. After that, I was made the managing attorney of the advocate's office for five years, and I ran that disciplinary operation. Now, where I thought the officers were wrong, I had a reputation for going full bore. But where I thought an officer was being wrongfully accused or the evidence did not support an administrative prosecution, I was not afraid to stand up occasionally to internal affairs and say that as well. And over time, I believe I had a reputation as someone who was tough, but also was fair. And then I continued to get promoted, and I was a captain when Commissioner Braddon and Jack Maple came in in January of 1994, an era where we had 2,000 murders in New York City or more, and we had a sense of crime, fear, and disorder that is well, well beyond what we're experiencing now, notwithstanding the recent increases in crime, fear, and disorder over the last few years. I actually got to play a significant role with the Braddon team early on as a lawyer working for Jeremy Travis, a deputy commissioner of legal matters. I was the commanding officer in his office, and I remember Jack Maple early on in January came in and he gave Commissioner Travis and I assignments, one of which was to draft out a quality of life strategy. And I ultimately got to make a presentation to the commissioner and the executive staff on that that was very well received. And that's where we started, you know, having an actual approach to the NYPD dealing with the so-called little things, the squeegee men and, and people who were aggressive panhandling, basically, is what we mean by that. People were selling drugs on the street, people who were stealing the fare evasions and have a process tied into with the whole Comstat system that was developed at that time. And I was at some of the early Comstats with a yellow pad, making notes and communicating with Commissioner Maple, Jack Maple. And notwithstanding some initial skepticism, let's say, that I had as to whether or not this type of an approach would significantly get the reductions in crime that Commissioner Braddon was promising, very early on, I saw homicides under 1,000 cut in half. I saw all the index crimes 
plummeting. I saw a subway system come back from the grave where people were all of a sudden confident again. And then in a matter of a couple of years, I became deputy commissioner of legal matters for five years and then first deputy police commissioner for eight years. So for almost half of my NYPD career, 13 years, I was in the upper reaches of the executive staff, making sure that the gains we made were built upon. And I'm very proud of what we were able to do. And then in January of 2010, I had an opportunity to become a judge. Mayor Bloomberg gave me a five-year appointment. And I had a wonderful walkout at 1PP as an eight-year first step. Literally hundreds and hundreds of people along the plaza. I don't know if you were there, Ed. You might have been. And I had my wife with me, my wife, Regina, my two sons, George and Joseph, my parents, her parents. We marched through this wonderful crowd. My father-in-law and I, my father-in-law was in the Army, Bob, during the Korean War, and he was a ceremonial man. He was pitch perfect. And Bob and I turned around side by side. We saluted everyone. And then I walked across the street to City Hall with my family, and I signed an oath book. I officially became a judge. The next day, I was on the bench in Kings County Criminal Court, probably the biggest criminal court and the busiest criminal court in the United States, doing like 100 arraignments a day. And, and the people would say, oh, Commissioner, you know, you were first step. And I say, how is that? I said, it's great. I'm 52. I get to be a rookie again. And, and then I just had another fabulous career in the matter because that the skill set that those of us were fortunate enough to serve in the NYPD, play by the rules, and do the right thing. The skill set's phenomenal. And the, the assessment, the basic common denominator is, is we know how to get things done. That's a skill that we can take with us, whether we're in law, whether we're in security, whether we go into real estate, you name it. That's a skill set. So within two years, I was made the supervising judge for citywide arraignments. We had a crisis in arraignments. Arrest to arraignments times over 30 hours when there was Court of Appeals case law called the Roundtree case that had been in existence since the early 90s that said it should be 24 hours. I was given the citywide job in about a year. We had citywide arraignments down under 20 hours. I then created youth parts called DATY and Project Resets where we took young kids, 16 and 17, and they were getting arrested for the quality of life type offenses. We off-tracked them. We gave them a program focusing on a self-esteem and consequential decision-making, and then we would just dismiss their cases or, in some cases, have the arrest voided. I then became the supervising judge in Bronx Criminal Court in June of 2016. There was another cri- I became the crisis guy, just like in the NYPD, going back to the 7-7 cases. I was always kind of like the crisis person. What do we do? Let's let Officer Grasso, Commissioner Grasso, Judge Grasso work on it. Let's see what happens. So we had another crisis in Bronx Criminal Court. We had a monstrous backlog of misdemeanor cases, something like 2,400 cases over a year old. We had a new chief judge, Janet Fiore. She was greeted with a class action lawsuit. They made me the supervising judge of that court with a mandate to do everything possible. No new budget, just the mandate to drive that down. By the time the pandemic hit in 2020, in like March of 2020, we had that 2,400 down to about 160 cases over a year old, and that lawsuit was long gone. But what I'm most proud of in my tenure in the Bronx, I created a program called OR, 
the Overdose Avoidance and Recovery Court. And that court was designed to look for people who, when they got arrested, whether it was for stealing, whether it was for drug dealing, whether it was for larceny, larcenous type behavior, trespassing, a whole variety of crimes, if they were assessed at arraignments to present with the possibility of serious substance use disorder, I directed the judges in arraignments to send the cases in court terminology forthwith to me, either immediately or the next business day. And I had a team. I worked with stakeholders. I worked with the defense attorney, legal aid society, Bronx defenders, district attorney's office, police department, and all kinds of service providers throughout New York City, such as the Center of Court Innovation, Bronx Community Solutions. And we would give these individuals wraparound services, inpatient, outpatient, whatever they were assessed to need, if they wanted to accept the opportunity. The only thing they had to do is live a law-abiding life, no new crimes, come to court, and do their best to cooperate with the program. So here's the deal. You do that, we save your life, and then we dismiss the case. This program was so successful, we had dozens and dozens of successful cases, that the chief judge had assigned me in 2018 and 2019 to expand it citywide. And then the pandemic hit in 2020 and everything kind of slowed down. And then I had to run the court from my, literally from my basement and keep grand jury processes going, deal with cases when we no longer had grand juries. And we had, we had to do a certain kind of a hearing remotely that had never been done before. And well, had rarely been done in, in New York before, preliminary hearings, keep that system going. We did that. We kept it going and we were very successful. And then in 2021, in August, I was named the administrative judge in Queen's Supreme Court criminal term. And walking in the door in August 21, I inherited a court in the context of the pandemic that would sometimes only do maybe one jury trial in a week. So I put my resources together, I pulled together the stakeholders, and I made the number one priority moving cases and getting trials. In a matter of months, we were doing 10, we had the capacity and we would actually do on occasion 10 jury trials in a day. Then on August 31st of 2022, Having done a year of that, having still a wonderful career on the bench, and my term not being up until December 31st of 24, I quit. And the reason I quit is because of what's been going on in our city for the last several years. I think that the so-called criminal justice reform package of 2019, the bail reform that they take half the penal law off the table, the, the larcenies, the drug dealings assaults, you name it, car thefts, and people just can commit five, commit 10, commit 25. Oh, by the way, if you don't feel like coming to court, warrant all you want, and they can do things repetitively. Recidivism wasn't taken into consideration. Dangerousness wasn't taken into consideration. Judges could not look at the repetitive nature of the charges, look at the defendant's rap sheet, and try and protect the community. All that was off the table. And I predicted in publicly in, in February of 2020 that unless the legislature reconvened and did hearings, that this 
process would have a serious detriment to public safety. Because what was done in 2019 is that bill was rammed through the legislature and Governor Cuomo signed it. And yes, they consulted extensively with advocates and defense attorneys, but judges like me, no. Police department, no. Victims, no. And they refused to deal, they refused to deal with the issue. So now we have a situation where people are jumping over turnstiles at will, they're stealing at will, and we need district attorneys, who are the chief law enforcement officers of the county they serve, to stand up and take ownership of this, to make unambiguous public statements that this is wrong, and we need to work with the laws that we have to prioritize public safety, to prioritize quality of life, enforcement to the extent we can under existing law to meet the people in the community and the victims where they are. In my own county, Queens County, frankly, I did not then and I do not believe that was being done. So I had a look in the mirror. I talked to my wife. I had the courage of my convictions. I went to Albany on September 1st of 2022. I filed paperwork, Grasso for Queens. I put a first-class team together. We're raising money. My website is grasso4queens.com. I encourage anyone who is listening to this podcast, who has any interest in possibly supporting my campaign, whether it's financially or as a volunteer, look at the website. You'll see, read my editorials in the Post, in the Daily News, numerous interviews I've given, and you'll see I'm a guy who says what he means and means what he said, says. And so that's where I am. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's great, George. What a career. You're really doing a great job. And Ed, Ed, Captain? If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. I want to take you back to the time when I was in the police department. You may not recall this. You were a lieutenant in the advocate's office, and I was a captain. I do recall it. And I was being interviewed by Ed Leopold. And he brings George in, who's a lieutenant, which would be, I don't want to use the word inferior, but he was a lower rank than me. Managing attorney. Managing attorney. And I'm saying to myself, I can't believe this. I'm going to be supervising this guy, and he's interviewing me for the job. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't didn't know you then, but I learned to love you. And George and I have a very close relationship. I want to ask you now about the current situation, you know, particularly Memphis. Right. What is your opinion of uh, what happened in Memphis? And do you think such a thing would have happened in the PD or could happen in the PD in New York? Okay. So let's break that up into two parts. Part one, what do I think of it? It was absolutely horrific. I mean, to the extent I can comment on something when I wasn't there personally and I didn't personally investigate the case, I looked at the videos like everybody else. I, I read the New York Times article where you could hit the videos and I, wa- I watched them numerous times. I can't find any justification at all. It was almost the best way I can describe it, and this is my verbiage, it was almost like a mini police riot of five uniformed police officers 
attacking and it turns out essentially beating a helpless, a helpless, unarmed civilian to death. As far as I know, as I sit here today, there is no independent verification. We still don't know why this individual was even stopped. So, yes, it was absolutely horrific. Now, to stick with Memphis, I actually was on a, I actually watched yesterday Bill Ritter, close up, Channel 7. He had Commissioner Braddon on. And I have tremendous respect for Commissioner Brad, and I alluded to him and Jack Maple earlier. I believe that the two of them, with help from others like Lou Anamone and John Timoney, I like to think I played some role, but they were the leaders, Braddon and Maple. They came in with a whole new idea and concept. I think that Commissioner Braddon is, as far as I'm concerned, he is one of the real leading law enforcement professionals in the country. And he spoke directly to that. And he was talking about, apparently, the training in Memphis for this particular unit was, I think it was called the Scorpion Unit. you think they could come up with a better name than that, by the way, in this day and age, right? But the training was abysmal. As far as what Commissioner Braddon was saying yesterday, and I, and I assume he, if he says this publicly, he looked into it. He was talking about three days of classroom training for this group. Three days? In a major American city where your primary job is to go out and get guns off the street? And apparently one of the chief, or the chief, again from Commissioner Braddon, had the same kind of a unit in Atlanta and had similar problems. So what's going on with the hierarchy? What's going on with the officers? And another thing to parrot what Commissioner Braddon was saying, because I believe it absolutely, Bill was, what Commissioner Braddon was saying is recruitment and training. I'm going to add one more thing to it. I would say recruitment, training, and discipline. You must have, and you and I would talk, you, you saw me in the advocates days. I took discipline seriously. Sometimes the unions didn't like that. And that would be too bad because I had a job to do. And discipline, because when we recruit the right people and we give people the training, they need to know in real time that if they step off the reservation, they're going to be disciplined. And the idea is you don't wait until there's a horrific incident like this, that you, you can discipline somebody if they're doing the wrong thing, but it's not horrific. And then you can turn the discipline into a training experience as well. But apparently the recruitment and the training in Memphis was abysmal. And that's the kind of thing. Also, if we talk about Take a step back, the so-called defund the police movement. That movement is not dead, and it's certainly not dead in New York City. There was an, an article that I commented on last week in social media. I commented on my social media account, which anybody who goes on to my website, you can get to my social media. I've got Twitter, and I've got the Facebook, and please take a look at you know what I'm doing there. And if you like what you see or you're interested in what I'm doing, please follow me. So I went into that Caban thing, and it was apparently she's part of a group of like Democratic Socialists on the city council, and they're trying to get all Democrat council people to sign some kind of an oath or a promise that, you know, what we need to do is do legislation that limits the size and the scope of the NYPD. Well, how does that ever work? 
limit the size and the scope in a city of eight plus million people when it's not just public safety in the traditional sense. But, you know, we remember what 9-11 was like. And I was there. I was a block and a half away when the South Tower came down. And we built with Ray Kelly, by the way, I worked eight years for Ray Kelly. Ray Kelly developed a first-class, not just first-class America, a world-class counterterrorism and intelligence gathering operation for New York City. Well, we have New York City police officers under his leadership with Deputy Commissioners Frank Labuti and David Cohen. I was the first Deputy Commissioner. I got to play a part in that, too, which I'm very proud of. This is really, really expensive. You start slashing budget. What are you going to slash? Counterterrorism? What are you going to slash? Patrol? Oh, how about we slash recruitment and training? And what, that's another thing that Commissioner Braddon was saying. You get what you pay for. And apparently Memphis wasn't putting the right amount of money in this. So you ask a question to get to your second question. Could this ever happen in the NYPD? That's a broad question. We have had horrible incidents in the NYPD. Fortunately, nothing like that in the last, you know, 20, 25 years. But we've had some horrible incidents. And, and I believe in those incidents, we've always tried to learn. And that's where recruitment, training, robust discipline and supervision, and, and supervision it all comes in. So, so I'd like to believe that the NYPD is, you know, past the point of a Memphis, but we can never rest on our laurels. We can never rest on our laurels. We absolutely must maintain the highest standards of recruitment, the highest standards of training, and a robust and independent disciplinary system. But within all of that, have a process that where an objective review shows that a police officer, something might have looked bad on 30 seconds of Twitter or something like that, but in the totality of the situation that the police officer was applying her training or his training and was acting in good faith, then those officers must be backed. Because if you don't do that, not only is it objectively wrong, but you lose the officers. So we always must be vigilant. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I want to ask you, you alluded before to uh, something that uh, triggered something in my mind. The city council has passed legislation that are really hampered police work. For example, they've taken away the use of qualified immunity. They directed right. the corporation council not to use that as a defense. They have come up with that chest compression law. And now you're talking about they want to defund. So the city council is a major problem. Now, Regarding qualified immunity, that time has been kicked around a lot. I don't know if the average person understands what it is. So could you give us a brief explanation of what qualified immunity is? So it's hard to give you a brief explanation because I'm a, you know, I spent 13 years as a judge. I mentioned to you, we could spend an entire program. But, you know, just looking, you know, a specific definition 
that has been used in terms of the federal concept of quality, qualified immunity is in the United States, qualified immunity is a legal principle that grants government officials, which would include police officers, performing discretionary functions, immunity from civil suits, unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated, quote, clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. That's a quote right out of pertinent case law. So I essentially, in the best layman terms that I can say, it's supposed to give a government official, including a police officer, the benefit of the doubt in terms of litigation under circumstances that might not have been that clear to a reasonable officer under the circumstances. If they're acting, uh, in, good faith. If they're acting in good faith. I believe it's an important principle. I believe that the city council erred when they removed that from the protection of police officers in New York City. I also believe that there are many things in the George Floyd Law Enforcement Act. It's, I know it's named after George, something like the George Floyd Law Enforcement and Police you know, Reform Act, something like that. I'm going to say, frankly, I think that there's a lot of good things in that act. I think that things like creating, apropos of what we were just talking about in Memphis, talking about a national standard of, of training, national standards of, of raising up the recruitment, things of that nature. You know, some sort of a national standard of what's an acceptable use of force. So we're all kind of, we have over 600 thousand police officers in the United States. And by the way, as bad as Memphis was, I have to say this, to take any one incident, as horrible as it might be, to tarnish over 600,000 men and women in the sense of saying, I mean, do I feel that all police officers, that all police officers, that this was a black mark on all officers? Of course, because we're proud of our profession. I do, but as a police officer, and we always consider, and I have 30 years in the police department, I feel ashamed as someone who is a police officer to see that. But then to turn around and go to the next level and say, this particular incident means that police officers can't and should not be trusted. That's going into a wrong place and into a dangerous place. So we have to couch our language carefully here. Just like we would not want to take one particular horrific anti-Semitic incident or some incident where someone is brutally murdered by a perpetrator who fits a certain type of a description of certain ethnicity, like 9-11, for example. I thought President Bush, George W. Bush, was at his finest moment when after 9-11, he called on Americans to see this as what it was, a horrific terrorist attack by al-Qaeda and fellow travelers of Osama bin Laden. Not something has an indictment on the entire Muslim community. Unfortunately, some other presidents haven't walked that line as clear-cut as George Bush did. And I say the same thing with respect to the Memphis incident. Yes, that was horrific. And yes, we should learn from it. And yes, as a profession, we shouldn't be defensive about it. But let's not throw 600,000 police officers under the bus. That's unequivocally wrong. So those are my views on that, Ed.
Very good, Judge. Thank you. And you're so right. I mean, thousands of interaction with the police each day with the public. And, you know, police do a great job every day. Unfortunately, sometimes issues like Memphis puts a black eye on the law enforcement community. However, you know, that's one incident of thousands of interactions each day that the police do a great job. But that is an unfortunate incident in Memphis. And, you know, we'll let the justice system decide what's going to happen there. With that said, Judge, you also bring... Oh, uh, one second. Because then I wanted to say when I was talking about the George Floyd Act, the part of it I don't agree with was a part that was passed by the House to eliminate qualified immunity. That part, I absolutely disagree with. And furthermore, I think that it's something that will not pass and should not pass, by the way. So I think what responsible... You know, they've got Cory Booker, senator from New Jersey, working with... who's a Democrat working with Senator Tim Scott, senator from the state of South Carolina, who's a Republican. I think it's their job to do what's right for the country here and not, you know, be swayed by hard left or hard right politics and take a look, especially in the light of what just happened in Memphis. And obviously what happened with George Floyd was another one of the most horrific incidents that we could ever imagine seeing. So we need to learn from this. And I think that a lot can be done that would be very good for the country to raise standards of training, raise standards of recruitment, raise standards of discipline, create some sense of appropriate use of force, but don't don't remove qualified immunity and then and then put officers' lives, officers' livelihoods on the line under circumstances that that may in fact be ambiguous, which is why this case law developed. That's counterproductive and furthermore would serve to undermine many other good ideas in that legislation. And I also think the city council and, and it also it also is counterproductive to recruitment. We say we want the best and we should want the best to become police officers. If young women and men look at police work and think that I could just be showing up in good faith and lose everything because a certain type of immunity that was, has been ingrained in law for generations has been removed. It undermines recruiting the high level of people we want. So I did want to circle back and close the loop on that point. Well, Judge, touching on cr- recruitment, we have a problem here, unfortunately, in NYPD with recruitment as well as national, a, national, you know, a nationwide problem with recruitment. Why do you think that is? I think it's because of one of the things I just said. You know, I think that police officers see a lot of a lot of people, you know, I watch some of these commentary programs on television and you can't miss them. And you got a lot of people like hypothesizing about the police culture. And there are certain people, I'm not going to name them, they like lay in wait, they hang around in the shadows, you know, columnists, they have their own shows on television and they want it find a bad incident and basically throw the whole police culture under the bus. bus. And they talk as if they know about police culture. And I look at them and I laugh because they don't really have a clue. They'll look at one bad incident in a country of all, in the size of a continent of over 300 million and say, this is the real police. What about the police culture on 9-11? When I was there, were you there, Kevin? Course, yes, you I were was, there? Yes, you know, so. I know you were off the job at that time. You well, were was, retired at that right, time. Right, but I was working as a volunteer for almost a, for a month. Right, but to talk about that day, right? I was like two blocks. We had our forward command center at 75 Barclay. I was with our first deputy commissioner, Dunn. We were literally 
we were watching the towers in flames. We were seeing people jumping out of the buildings. It was horrific. And Joe Dunn is like, uh, you know, George, I want you to go back to headquarters. We've got, we're putting up the command center on the eighth floor. I'll be back. We thought of it as a fire. We weren't thinking. We knew it was horrible. We knew it was a terrorist attack. We weren't thinking the buildings were coming down. And then those buildings come down. We just kept coming. Our people kept coming. Days, weeks, months. How many of us are dealing with not, yeah, and I've got very close friends. I'm sure we, brain cancer has been a thing. Right. I've got several very close friends. One who was my guy who was with me constantly, who we lost to brain cancer within the last several years. Nobody went home. What about that part of police culture? Right. What about that part of our oath? Mm-hmm. You know, so let's stay balanced. I believe the way we... We, as the NYPD, using the NYPD as a metaphor for police culture, because the people at the Pentagon as well, you know, the people in Pennsylvania, right. you know, we run into danger in our culture, as do, as do firemen. That's our job. You know, people take the job by and large, as what I've seen speaking for myself, I would imagine you and Ed would feel the same. We take the job to help people, not to hurt people. But you find yourselves involved in unlimited permutations of insane sets of circumstances. And sadly and tragically, we don't always do the right thing. But when we take those and we spotlight on those wrong things, let's not forget about 9-11. Let's not forget about the cops who run into burning buildings, even though they're not firemen, to get people out. Let's not forget about the police officer that we had recently walked into a domestic dispute. Two off, two young cops shot and killed. They're trying to protect a woman. It's what that. What about that part of the culture? So when we, when I watch these shows, I see these so-called, you know, really smart professorial types. And some people used to be police officers who, for whatever reason, got angry and decided they were going to spend the rest of their. They have like their detective shield behind them while they're giving the interview, and they talk so knowingly. Let's put a little bit more context in that. That's what I say, and that's what I believe. Thank you, George. I want to thank you for being our guest today on Cop Talk. And if you'd like to give the, if any of our listeners with Cop Talk would like to get involved in your campaign to help you out in any way, is it, can you mention the website again, please? Yes, grasso4queens.com, G-R-A-S-S-O-F-O-R-Q-U-E-E-N-S. Dot com, grassoforqueens.com. From there, you can link into my social media. Again, you can see firsthand. I've given speeches in Southeast Queens, African-American congregations, South Queens, South Ozone Park, all over Queens. You can see firsthand what I'm saying, the kind of response that I'm getting. And I am doing this for righteous reasons. I believe I can not only turn Queens around, I believe I can turn the entire city around and that I know what to do, I know how to enforce the law, and I will be proud, not ashamed, to be the chief law enforcement officer of Queens County, and I will set an example for every other district attorney in our city, some of whom maybe need to rethink who they are and what their job title is. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Judge. Thanks for coming again, and thank you for being on Cop Talk. Thank you. Good luck to you. Thank you. I want to thank our audience for listening to Cop Talk today. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed our show, 
please share it and subscribe to it. And thank you very much for listening.